Welcome to Running on Purpose, a podcast dedicated to training the body, mind, and soul for what the race requires. My name's Steve, and I'm your host. This week, I'm bringing you a Thanksgiving special episode. I'll be releasing this episode on Wednesday, uh, just prior to Thanksgiving 2023. In it, I interview an athlete of mine named Bill Corrigan. I interviewed Bill back in March of 2020, just as the pandemic was breaking out. Bill was preparing for his first Boston Marathon, and unfortunately he didn't get to run it that year because of all the shutdowns. This episode, that episode, which I will link in the show notes below, we discussed his, he had a question. It was a Q&A episode. I was doing those at the time. And it was on um, mental training, specifically how someone might or consider periodizing mental training. And we bandy about a, a number of different ideas around that. It's actually a pretty good episode. We, we reference it here a couple of times as we both listened to it prior to doing this recording. So you may want to listen to it. It's up to you. It's not really pertinent to uh, what we talk about here. Because Bill's life took a dramatic turn. As we discuss in this episode, somewhere along the line, he was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease, also known as ALS. ALS, for those of you who don't know, is a tragic and devastating disease, one in which we have no known cure and where the diagnosis uh, is just a pretty, pretty savage. Bill talks about it here a little bit more. I, I, I'll leave most of that here. I, I don't need to inter. I don't need to introduce that part. But I do just want to say that the reason I selected this for the episode for this week was for us to consider gratitude. And Bill discusses gratitude and gracefulness repeatedly in this episode, especially near the end. Some of you may say, why, why, why release an episode like this? Well, I've been dying to talk to Bill. Once, and he's actually one of the reasons why I've rebooted this podcast, because I felt like conversations like this just needed to be had. Many of us take for granted the abilities that we have, the opportunities that we have, and we focus myopically on our goal time or our pace per mile when things could be drastically different for us. I hope you'll enjoy this episode. I hope you'll get a lot from it. I certainly got a lot from the conversation. It was very inspiring. So without further ado, I bring you the Thanksgiving special episode I call Go On, Be Brave, an interview with Bill Corrigan. Godspeed, my friends. Godspeed. Yeah. Now give me a, a oh, sound. Um, the kicker. The kicker. I think that's the, mm. your, your, your. Yeah, yeah. Is, yeah. You still use that? <laughs> I do. A, I have a new one Michael made for me. Oh, good. It sounds yes. cooler. Yes. Um, yeah. That That's on um, the one with the, you're just, you and Michael now. I'm drawing a blank on the It's name called of Keep it. Going. Keep Going, yes. Yeah. yeah. I've got right. two podcasts now. I've got the Running on Purpose podcast, which you were on originally. Yes. You were one of the last three episodes that ever went out in that first, what I'm calling season, even though it was oh, no. significantly longer than a season. Um, I think it was 2019 was to 2020. No, our conversation was fantastic. In fact, I'm going to just recommend that folks go back and listen to that episode. It'll be down in the show notes that they can check out. You know, Bill was at a different phase in his life, 
And so it was about to run. It was, well, first of all, COVID was just falling down around our ears. This was cut in March of 2020. And it, in it, we discuss the possibility or potentiality that races might happen and the possibility and potentiality that they might not happen. But by the time I released it in late March, we were all locked down. It was done and done. Now we were in Texas, so our lockdown was not like it was in, let's say, Australia or in New York City or in California. We had a uh, uh, one of the very few benefits of having a very Republican governor was that we didn't have quite the same kind of lockdown that everybody else had. And uh, great weather too. So we did. You could go out and uh, socially distance yes. away from people <laughs> while you were with them. Yeah. So we've got Bill Corrigan on the podcast again. This is his second time to be on it. As I mentioned and alluded to just a second ago, the circumstances in Bill's life have changed immensely. And we're going to go into that change. We're going to talk about where running fits in his life at this point, how, because he's got a, a health condition, how that has shifted and changed and where his mindset is. In our initial banter prior to hitting the record button, Bill said to me, he was just listening to the last podcast episode and he said, oh my goodness, so much has changed and so little has changed. So let's start there. I think that's a really good place to start. Let's talk a little bit about where you found yourself at the end of March, say in the pandemic period of 2020, where your running was, how your running was um, progressing, and then we can start going into the challenges that you and I were dealing with as coach athlete, not personal challenges, but just your running was starting to have some very unusual situations. So let's go through that and let's let's reframe and place where you were at at that time. And just for our listeners who are wondering why the hell I have Bill on this again and why we're talking about this, it will become very apparent pretty quickly. Number one, the love that Bill and I have for each other and the respect we have for each other. But I think that Bill's story is so unique and so unusual and it dovetails with my life story in such a unique and interesting way that I just told him months ago, we have to get a conversation on the record because of, and I don't want to, I'm not going to spoil it. We'll just let it play out, right? So tell us, Bill, where were you? What was life like for you in March, April, May, that whole pandemic period? So at beginning of March, I was feeling really great about doing the Boston Marathon in about six weeks. And I had just gotten a BQ, which about a year and a half earlier, I realized that I was close enough that if I really put my mind to it, that I could achieve that. And I also realized I really need to have a coach if I'm going to do that. I've been running on my own, self-coaching for about 12 or 13 years at that point and kind of hit a wall with my own ability to make myself go forward. And one of Steve's athletes said, oh, you got you to gotta get together with Sisson. And, um, and I did. And he trained me for five months and mostly the mental aspect which I didn't really understand until I got together with Steve. And you just, um, uh, you gave me what I needed so that I could be tough enough to survive the battle with the marathon that it is. And so that was in April, or excuse me, in September of 19, I got the BQ. Mm -hmm. Then we took a break. There was one time where you and I um, 
after that PQ, we went on a small run together, mm-hmm. and I tripped on that round. Like, oh, sorry, you know, got up, you know. And then um, I picked up in December training for Boston, you know. And then in early February, I had another trip and fell on my face and, like, you know, cut myself all up and everything like that. Yeah, it's alluded to in that episode. You can hear us talking about this. That's a good part of that episode to listen to. That little section's really good. So then um, I was fit for Boston, and then it didn't happen. Pandemic happened. So I was just telling Steve a wonderful thing, if there could be, about the early stages of the pandemic is it created a pause for all of us. So there was what we did before, and there was what we were going to make of afterwards. And in the beginning, there was this sort of kind of like, I, you know, was, I thought it was two months. You know, we all know it wasn't two months, you know. So then we started to make some other things out of it. I ran a virtual Boston Marathon in September, and as the pandemic started, I didn't cut my hair and I didn't shave. And at some point, I'm going like, well, this is getting messy. What am I going to do? <laughs> so I said, all right, I'm not going to shave until I run a marathon. Okay, so here's a purpose then. That virtual Boston in September, I ran that. It's like, oh, great, now I can shave. <laughs> And then I, I let my hair grow. It got really long. I decided to wait until, in my mind, I decided the pandemic was over. Um, and so that going out of the transition then into um, real running again, um, I, I had a different understanding of running. There was a, a better part for me the, for the community because – Originally, b- before the pandemic, I was really starting to get focused a lot on goal racing. And I think the running that we did in the seat before races started coming again was more about community and being with each other. And, um, and there were, as you alluded to, it was really hard for people to get together. But running was one thing that you could do outside and you could feel normal. And that was great. And then I did start to get back into goal racing. I had uh, Berlin. Oh, you were dyed in the wool. You were. You had them lined up, brother. I remember when you lined them all up. I was like, Bill's in for trouble. I don't know how he's going to get all these done. But yeah. you would. You would. The 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 six. What is it called? The six stars. Six stars. Yeah. Really bit you at that point. You you coming out of the pandemic. I think you were like, Hey, wait. There might. If there may not be races, then I need to get on this. This isn't a, I can do this for the next 10 years and get them slowly, but surely we don't, we remember those early, especially in the fall after that, when we had the virtual races, many of us were like, is anything ever going back to normal? It was a very weird early on. It was a pause later. It was a sense of fear and, and because of the way the politics around those things and the contentiousness around it and, and, and vaccines and what was going on with vaccines and how people were approaching those things and the way that races were talking about how they were going to put on events. I think there was this, and I felt in you an imperative, let's, let's hit this now. And you yeah. were 60, you know, we were 60, yeah. 61. So yeah. there was also that sort of life's uncertain. Maybe let's, let's get this ball rolling. It takes a few years to get into, into some of these races. So let's see what's going on. But you yeah, were definitely and, rocking and rolling there. And, and also, um, in fairness to my wife and my family, I felt like, all right, if I'm really going to do this, I can't let it spread out. I should really kind of like 
get on it, do it, and get that part of it done if that was going to happen. I sort of fell into the six-star thing a little bit by um, happenstance. I wanted to do New York Marathon, and it took me eight years to get through the lottery to get that. I survived two different times of knee injuries where over a year and a half I didn't run. And then I came back and I did New York with a cousin. And she said, that was great. Let's do Chicago next year. And I said, that sounds like fun. So in 18, we did the lottery and I got into Chicago lottery. And I did that. I did the Chicago marathon. That was great. All of a sudden I have two. And then I sort of had got to this level of fitness. And I, that's when you're alluding to me. I said, mm -hmm. hey, if I train, I can do Boston. You know, and then, yeah, then I, uh, I got into Berlin on the first time. And here's this thing. I got into the London Marathon, would have been 20. Um, and I don't know what's harder to do to get a BQ for Boston or be someone outside of Great Britain and get <laughs> into the London Marathon by the lottery. Yeah. Um, and I got into it and I thought, OK, I got to do these. And um, yeah, and so I just sort of took that on. So then there was when things were getting back to normal. Had um, I had Berlin and Boston, or maybe it was Berlin and London. Anyway, so it were the fall. It was the mm -hmm. that year twenty one when all the marathons, the majors were shoved into the fall schedule. And I and I said I got two or three of these that I could do, two of them, and I started training, and it was kind of weird it was the uh, summer of 2021 yeah 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 um i had been basically kept my fitness up um and you know i took i always take breaks from it it's mostly mentally i said if you're gonna be doing whatever sport you're is take time off during the year mostly for your mind less for your body so coming out of the break and i started going again i realized it's like I used to be able to warm up in 10 minutes. Now it seems like it takes 20 minutes. And then it was 30 minutes to warm up. And I was asking you, like, coach, what am I doing wrong? What's going on? You know, I, you know, everyone's past the first water stop and I'm just getting here. You know, I don't know why it's taken me three miles to warm up when it used to take me one. And then we do speed economy or speed work on the track. And I noticed I was still a geekometer then still mm -hmm. with the watch and i was noticing that my say we were doing um 10 150s with uh 250 strides um meters and i the 150s in the at the beginning of those were faster and then as i progressed through that half hour of doing that work my 150s were getting slower and harder to do, and it just didn't make sense to me. It didn't and, make sense to me either because you had 250 rests, so yeah, and it was walk jog, and you were walk jogging too. You were yeah, you were taking a full rest. Yeah. Yes, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I attributed to age. So did I, especially yeah. <laughs> the long warm up period, because it is a normal thing for people when they're warming up to take a little longer to get warm as they age, and for whatever reason. Yeah. I'm sure there are medical reasons or physical reasons, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's and just I got, a thing. I got trapped and I was doing these fancy blood tests. So I was spending $300 on fancy blood tests mm -hmm. and everything was great and normal and things like that. Then, so, um, leading up to the Berlin marathon in late September of 21, uh, my 
20-mile runs were almost impossible to do, and mainly because it was taking me so long to do them. Yeah, you and I were out on the route for... At 10, 11 o'clock, o'clock in the morning. morning. We started at 5.30 in the morning. We were yeah. still out there at 10.30, 11 o'clock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I'm like, what the hell am I doing? What's You know, I was doubting myself. I was thinking it was, I don't have the grit, the fortitude to do this. But yet there I am still out there doing that, you know. I'll never forget because I remember telling some of my athletes at the time they were feeling they were feeling bad for me because I was out there for so long with you. And I remember saying to one of them specifically, they said, well, maybe you can have a conversation with Bill. And I'm like, no, he it fit, this feeds me. Like seeing him suffer. Yeah, there's an inconvenient part. I'd like to get home and see my, my stepdaughter and my wife and get home, you know. But... I could sense the amount of effort you were putting in and it just felt like for you to do that by yourself just was totally inappropriate. <laughs> it just needed to be there. And and well, and, and also it was inspiring. Yeah. It was inspiring to see you and again, you know, another thing, re-listening to that first episode, that episode we cut together, I mentioned this about how curious you are. And how you want to learn and know about what's going on. And as your body was starting to have this difficulty in taking, you know, fitness didn't seem to be taking the way it take, takes. And because of the age factor, there was a piece where we just said, okay, where well, there's some of this is that. But then it got to a point where it even it, 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 it didn't compute. Yeah. Um, and so it, it, it was for me just seeing that curiosity and that insatiable need to figure it out and you wouldn't stop digging i think you sent me more emails in that window of time than you ever have sent me anything before (laughs) let's talk about that curiosity for a second because at that time one of the long runs at the you know mile 18 or 19 there was still you know two or four miles to go um i said i can't go anymore and you said all right and you gave me a ride back to the car the next week I wanted to do that, but I forget how the conversation went with you, but it was enough for me to say, no, I'm going. Because we were worried about your ability to get to the finish line within a cutoff time. Yeah. Remember? And I remember saying to you, listen, we can go home, we can get you back to the barn, but if we get you back to the barn, you won't have had the experience of knowing that you're under a little bit of a gun and how you're going to make that. It said something to that effect that's for right. you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and so I fed on that. I was like, oh, okay. So now it was. It became a different beast for me. Now, uh, you know, I wasn't trying to do four hours. I was trying to do six hours. It's like, okay, now I'm a six-hour marathoner for whatever reason, but I'm only going to have this one time to do Berlin probably. Mm-hmm. So why don't I go over there and just accept that that's what I'm going to try and do? So I got into that curiosity of it. It's like, oh, I don't have to be fast necessarily to get the kind of experience that I want out of it. And that is directly stuff we talked about in that episode. Yeah. That I, when I didn't, when listening back to it, I thought, oh my goodness, this is, you, like, neither one of us, I think, knew exactly how prescient that conversation would turn out to be. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so I went and did Berlin, and um, I... I'm amazed that they let me finish it. I, it took me six hours and 20 minutes, and there were 
people walking faster than me and and they got to be you know when you're out there on the race one of the strategies that you try and do is like a fisherman you see someone in front of you and you say i'm gonna catch that person and so you throw a line out there and you hook them and you got that line in your mind it's like i'm reeling them in you know and it's just a technique you can use when you're out there in a marathon so um i did that and i was like oh, i'm doing i'm chasing walkers okay so luckily i got to finish that i took time off when i got back and then as i started trying to run again all of a sudden i couldn't run i would go out to, i'm just i'm just i now i had sort of adopted running by effort and i wasn't on the geeko meter stuff because anywhere. the information was just telling negative feedback loops were overwhelming yeah, yeah. right yeah. <laughs> so i said like i'm gonna go out and have a comfortable run this is my first run i'm gonna run for 15 minutes and 10 minutes into it my body just slowed to a walk and it was like okay this is weird you know so i thought well let me rephrase let me try something different now um i'm gonna go to a gym and um in the past when i had injuries getting on the elliptical machine was a good place to come back from injuries. So I got on the elliptical machine. And after 10 minutes, all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, I'm gonna fall off this thing. What's going on? I had to like get down on my knees to get off the thing. And so that started my journey of um, trying to figure out there was I knew something was wrong with my body and I had to figure that, it out. Was it before Berlin where you had fallen down again? Yeah, yeah. Um, after two a week, yeah. yeah, two weeks before Berlin on September 11th, funny enough, I um, broke my fall with my nose because I was mid-stride and I started uh, helicoptering my hands and uh, crossing the street. Luckily, uh, the guy in the truck uh, decided to stop for the stop sign. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember we, because it was so disconcerting and I took me forever to get to, I didn't get to you. You finally yeah. had to get a, a, an ambulance and then your wife, Lucia, tried to call me, but I was, I forget what I was doing. I was doing something yeah, and I couldn't. Your child, your child, a soccer yeah. match or something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, like I can't that. remember yeah, what it was. Like it was something like that, and I couldn't get to the phone, or I didn't have the phone. Anyway, I remember our conversations after that for me saying to you, well, in my mind, I had uh, I had an alert. I'm like, we've th this, this is too much falling, and this slowing down is something that I think we need to think about a neurological. I think I remember saying to you, I think we've got something neurological going on that we need to look at. But you took a break, so we didn't think about it at all. But I think after you got off that elliptical and you were not being able to run, it was, all right, we need to take this a little bit more seriously. So fill us in on your journey after that, because this this journey is crazy. Yeah, right. Okay, so um, I thought it was uh, something weird in my spine. So um, I at first I went to... A neurosurgeon because I was thinking something called spinal stenosis because everything that I had was problem with me was from my hips and below and so my insurance company were dicks and they made me do go through physical therapy before I can get MRIs I don't know why I'm looking at the the PT and I'm going why am I here I don't know why you're here and I said okay let's jam through a, some quick sessions and then we'll send that to the insurance and then they said okay you get mris got the mris my spines were perfectly fine and he said uh, go see a neurologist so 
I went to a neurologist in <laughs> early 22. <laughs> yeah. And at the same time, I started uh, communicating with Dr. Google. <laughs> Be careful about that. Uh, but um, <laughs> I, as I was reading the results. I was like, oh, I know what this is. Mm. I don't want to say it out loud, but I know what this is. And I remember you telling me your circumstances and in my own heart, I knew what it was. Too, because I've, as I'll share my story a little bit later, I had some experience with this. So, anyway, keep going. Right. So, um, a series of tests, and um, uh, the the last test that they do, it's called. Uh, oh God, I hope I remember it right. EK, it's not an EKG. I'm not remembering the words, but they stick needles in you and they measure uh, signal responses between your muscles and your brain. And when it was done, he's still in his mask it was those days it was groundhog's mm. day 22 2 2 22 he said mr corrigan i hate to tell you this but you have als <laughs> yeah. so i have to break right here for a quick second and say i am living with als i am not dying with als we'll get back to that later thank on. you bill yeah thank you for saying that yeah yeah and in my and and anyway, let, why don't we keep going about how that experience, your initial, I think this is important. Um, this is a running podcast, but I'm hoping that anybody that you know within the ALS community, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, um, you're 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 now really linked in with the community, uh, the nationwide, worldwide community of ALS, local community. While well, I went to a fundraiser with you in the fundraising aspects and all of the getting the word out. Talk to folks a little bit about what ALS is first. And then number two, how you experienced, um, just talk about the disease so that people can understand the devastation of a, of a diagnosis like ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. Sure. It's a pretty rare diagnosis, um, but it's not super rare. Um, there's probably about 30,000 people in the United States right now living with ALS. About, um, I think it's, you know, a one in 300 people get it. What goes on with ALS is something happens inside your brain in the motor neuron system, which um, it's complicated. The simplest thing to say is that the signals that your motor neurons get to your muscle cells um, atrophies and turns off. And what happens then is your muscles don't get the signal to take in energy. So they just die. Then the real cruel thing is that your autoimmune system says, oh, those motor neurons aren't doing what they're supposed to do. So let's get rid of them. So then they um, take them out at the end. Um, ALS progresses differently for different people. Um, it can be very fast. It can be very slow. Stephen Hawkins Hawkins lived over 50 years with ALS. Um, I knew some people that have left, lasted days after the diagnosis. I'm now uh, approaching my second anniversary of my diagnosis, so probably three years mm -hmm. um, with it. So that's really kind of what, what happens. So for me, and every person, it presents itself differently too. For me, it seems like it's just crawling up my body, starting with feet. my feet 
Um, Which is why I, you were trips at Daisy. Right? Yep, yep, yep. Mm-hmm. yep. Uh, then you know it got very difficult to walk. Um, I I uh, continued to train. I thought maybe I could walk the Boston Marathon. Um, after my diagnosis, I trained to do that. I ended up being able to walk for four miles. Um, I, my wife and I said, bucket list, what do we got? We said Machu Picchu. Mm-hmm. So we went to Machu Picchu in June, like four months after my diagnosis. I was able to walk there, but with, with sticks. Um, by the time, by um, uh, July or so, I was really, I was in a wheelchair. I got a wheelchair and I did the London Marathon in a wheelchair and um, uh, late September or early October of 22. It took me eight hours, but uh, London's wonderful. Um, and so, yeah, so um, let's jump back then to about a month after my diagnosis. I, I had been feeling bad and, and down in the dumps, which, you know, not surprisingly. But I, I didn't want to be that way. And I, and I like, had this moment where I said, what really, what's changed? And, and I said, well, you know, my body's changing, but always going to change. And um, I'm still living and I still like life and I still like doing anything. And frankly, you know, I could step off the sidewalk wrong and get hit by a bus, you know. So it's like, do I really need to change my goals? And I thought, ah, I don't need to change my goals, but I have to adapt. And that's where I came up with, for me, ALS means adaptive lifestyle. Mm. Um, and I, my neurologist put me in touch with a doctor who put me in touch with the para-athlete community in Central Texas. And that has just been a wonderful find for me to get to know this new community and get a lot of help. And I became a wheelchair athlete after that. So I've had the wonderful opportunity throughout this whole time to continue to work with you as an athlete. Mostly I'm doing your working on your head game more than your physical game. Although I have made occasional suggestions based on um, yeah. basic physiology. And, and I think what the, you know, one of the things I like to talk about a lot is how, what does your race require? Yeah. And you've been running, ra- you've been running races. I still call them running, even if you're on a wheelchair, it's still, yep. you're still doing it. So it's like, well, how much time are we going to be out there? What kind of experiences are we going to be through? And we're going to go through some of those races because especially Missoula, like your, your, your process <laughs> of your training and the way that's worked is just something I want to highlight to my listeners because I just think it's so important for people to be, to hear your story. Um, but I want to share this is one of the reasons why hearing when Bill got his diagnosis in February, 2022, he called me and we talked all about it and I had an inkling something like this was coming on because I've had an experience in my life of two very close people in my life have had ALS. Uh, My father's best friend that we moved from central, moved from the Philadelphia area to Texas in the late seventies for my dad to go to law school. Uh, Their family came down with us. His name was Paul Grossweiler. We're still really good friends with their family. I, I will be next the Saturday after Thanksgiving, we're going to dinner with their family. Um, he, he, his ALS was, I was in high school. And so it hit me really hard because I didn't understand. I had this faith. I was a Christian and I didn't understand. He had a very strong faith and he wanted for some, we had a link with poetry. I liked to write poetry and he liked to write poetry. We both read it. And near the end of his, his days, he, 
you know, when he, when, and he's a gregarious human being, extremely vocal, very gregarious. Uh, but as, as the disease wore on him, we would spend once a month together, twice a month together, getting together and just reading, talking about the poetry that we'd read and then reading our own poetry to each other. This is before the internet, before mm-hmm. all those things were available that way. And I watched each month as he continued to deteriorate, and he deteriorated pretty quickly, um, and it got to where he couldn't use his hands, so he couldn't write, so then he had to then, and then eventually took his voice, and so he couldn't even speak, and then it, then he used his eye, you know, they've got all those techniques, this was, mm-hmm. this was late 80s, so he was using his eyes to get to write, and it was, it's hard to watch someone you love so dearly, who's so vibrant and creative, and at the height of his powers. He was not yet retired, but he was living a creative, passionate life. And he had a strong Christian faith. And so for me, it was, that's a hard thing for anybody to deal with, to know and see. Um, But when he passed, there's a beauty to a person's passing when their disease is one that you know is going to take them do you know the way that the the very the high high likelihood of what they're going to die of is the disease itself of ALS? So he passed, and it was hard, but it was you know that's what life is. That's part of living. Um, and then I when I started Rogue back in early twenty in early two thousand two, before it was Rogue, it was Run Tex University, and we'd started doing um, races up at doing in the mountains. I was doing a lot of trail running. We would go to Mount, we would go to Pikes Peak and I did Pikes Peak about five, six years in a row. And I coached groups for that. And one of the people that I coached is this guy who was uh, uh, in the army. He was in the reserves at this point, but he'd been in the army. He was a jarhead, <laughs> but another gregarious, incredible human being. His name is Dan Kites. And Dan, um, after about four or five years of working together, he also was diagnosed with ALS and his ALS came on like a freight train. And, mm-hmm. It was nine months, 12 months that he was even with us uh, before he passed. And I couldn't take it um, because I'd gone through the, the passing of Paul before that. Mm-hmm. I, felt, I felt so strongly that I had abandoned an athlete and a person in need. And my really good friend, Joe Presedas, who's still a coach in the local area, a trail coach, stayed with him and continued to help him through that process. And I kind of checked out. And... I always have felt a deep sense of grief and guilt around that. So fast forward another 20 years, Mm. it's in 20 year chunks, another athlete, another person who I hold very dear, who we've done a lot of work together. We've been Mm. on the roads together, Mm. has this rare diagnosis. And it's just like, what the fuck? Yeah, I'm the first person I ever met that had ALS. And I've had two close friends pass from it, and eventually know, you'll buddy. be the third. <laughs> but this time I said, I'm fucking answering the call. Yeah. So there's there's a... So this is personal to me. That's why this episode is being cut. First of all, Bill's story is a great story, and everybody should <laughs> hear it. But for me, it's also a part of something I... Th- trying to pull a thread on, I've been pulling a thread on this idea of running as a movement practice or mm-hmm. running as a way of well-being for people mm-hmm. and that the racing mentality, the racing focus, that focus on pursuit that I call is is just one part of why we do what we do. Mm-hmm. And your story highlights this because you continued as you, you used, continued to use these pursuits 
you continued to sign up for races. Yeah. And I was always Bill's signing up for another race. <laughs> he's not running them, but he's now he's he's yeah, in a wheelchair I, I, or he's I, in the hand cycle. Yeah, I, in the, the <laughs> last um, uh, thirteen months, I've done five marathons. Yes. Yeah. And to me, but but what I've watched through this is this continuing thread of creativity and curiosity that is wound through this whole process, and and that curiosity and creativity. For me, when I watch it with you, Bill, what it is is primarily a, what I call soul. It's soulful. Mm. And I know your worldview is a little different from mine. I've got a strange and unusual worldview, and yours <laughs> is a little more of an atheistic, <laughs> atheistic materialist sort of point food. of view. Yes, we're all worm food, <laughs> as I like to say. But yet you still re, you're still getting this diagnosis. You've said, yeah, fuck that. I'm just going to see what I can do. Adapted, what is it? Adaptive lifestyle. Yeah. So... Um, when I have to say about the curiosity, um, so uh, before I had ALS and running started for me as something to um, improve my fitness, um, I was middle-aged, uh, getting fat, getting cholesterol, high blood pressure. Running was a simple way to work on that. So then that was a purpose. Then the purpose changed for me as I got to do racing. I started with half marathons, and then I can keep going. I started doing marathons. Every marathon I've ever finished, I said to myself, I could keep going. I've never done more than 26.2 miles or 42.1 kilometer, but um, I still feel like I could keep going when I'm done with it. So um, then... I, I, I started enjoying and I got sort of like this, oh, let me see if I can break four hours. You know, I'm not sure why I, other than I think it was good for my soul and my spirit to adapt and change my purpose as we've talked about. So unbeknownst to me, while all that's going on is how I'm preparing my body for in the future, the most brutal thing that could happen to someone. And I really think that I got diagnosed quickly within four months of my journey to find out what was going on with me because I was in tune to my body. And you helped me with that, with all of the, the, the training that we did. And, and you, know, you know, this is speed economy. This is what it's like to be fast. This is what it's like to run 95%. This is what it's like to run easy. This is what it's like to... To feel it and to be close. in your body. Yeah, to feel you know, it and be in your body. Yeah, sometimes, yeah. you know, marathon training, the training doesn't start until after mile 18. And that's something to, to learn. So I had all these different aspects. So when I... Um, okay, so after the diagnosis, I was like, I got to start taking care of myself. And one of the best ways I know to take care of myself is to keep doing what I was doing. And I really do think that it has helped with my mental fortitude to stay up with the rigor that I need to do to be able to, I mean, right now it's, it's difficult for me to put my clothes on, mm -hmm. you know, and um, just knowing in the past that it's like, um, the only way is through it, you know. It's, <laughs> so just different mantras and things like that. And, and it's like you can, you know, you can do this and you can get help. And I do get help. Um, but it, it's just the purpose has changed. The curiosity is still there. And um, I'm just uh, adopting that curiosity. And so in some ways, um, as I've talked about before, 
marathons are like uh, symphonies and training and practice is what you do with your community and your friends and you have fun with that and that's where you're you're jiving with your music and then every now and then you got to get on that symphony hall stage and show the world what you can do and so that's what marathons are like and so I still have that desire to do that and keep doing that I mean, it's just different now how I try and do it so let's talk a little bit about your race selection journey um, you've had struggles with, <laughs> well, you got into Tokyo and anybody that's knows anything about Tokyo knows Tokyo is a really hard race to get into. Yeah. It's a p- tough place to get into. And this, you know, last year you and I were supposed to go together. Yeah. Um, because we were, you had, you had decided you're going to go do it in the, in the, I wanted to do it in my day chair because right. now it's interesting. So six months earlier for London, I thought I was going to do that in a push rim racing chair. So I trained for that this summer. About three weeks before, I never heard anything from London about me being a para-athlete. And I said, getting ready to come over there in my push rim racing chair. And they said, oh, no, you can't do that. you got to do it in your day chair. I'm like, what? I don't even have my day chair yet. I'm hoping just, to get it. And got just it so in pe- time. And just so people know, day chairs are significantly heavier than your racing chair. Right. right. A lot and, and not aerodynamic and right. much slower process. Yeah. But you were also not in the elite field. They put you in the race with all of everybody. Yeah. Which right. was they both, call it the masses. Which was which both which was both a stress, but also turned out on race day to be an unbelievable joy for oh, you. Yeah. Uh, but but I remember experience. in our in our process of walking through. Listen, folks, like. Bill and I did extensive pre-race discussions on our race strategy. Just because he's in a wheelchair or in a hand cycle, we were still at before each race talking through what he, where we thought he would be time-wise, what he would have to do in order to get that time that he needed to get, how he would approach a hill or some other challenge around around it. So this is what I this is my main point of this podcast is keep going. Yeah. We got to keep going. But let's talk a little bit about the struggles of selecting races how those races got selected for you and maybe talk a little bit because there's so many listeners of this podcast who are on this six star journey yeah and and you've been on this six star journey um and just yes just yesterday you and i had a conversation about the likelihood of completing the six star journey and how that might play out for you Mm -hmm. um before you're not able to be in a chair anymore so let's that's a lot that I'm asking you to go through, but I know you know how to tell a yarn, so I'm going <laughs> to let you get started, and we'll, we'll jump in where we need to. Yeah. Well, um, the first thing is um, I really didn't know how I was going to do it, and um, I did discover a local community, but they weren't really doing marathons the way I was doing marathons. Then in May of 22, I read a New York Times article about Andrea Little Pete, who was the first person she was just finishing her 50th marathon in 50 states post-diagnosis. And I said, oh my gosh, this is great. I got to get in touch with her. I was able to get in touch with her. And she has been such a hero and a mentor to me and helped me understand that, yes, as my body's changing, if I can find inside of me the will and the heart, and as she puts it, go on, be brave. And if I can find those things, I can keep going. So um, some of the challenges I had to navigate was all of the different races have different requirements. 
The biggest challenge was, though, that I was an ambulatory. I was a runner. And so I, <laughs> I didn't have the guns, you know, my arm strength for doing wheelchair stuff. Many wheelchair athletes are, um, have congenital defects, you know, birth defects, or they've been in accidents at a younger age. Yeah. And they moved to this out of, out of a desire to be competitive. Yeah. Um, what you did, too, but more, they, they have a I, longer, longer right. on-ramp to getting into para-athletics. Exactly. Into I, I was such a neophyte that I didn't realize um, what I had to develop within my body. It took me about, well, after London, I realized there's a greater kind of conditioning that I have to do, and I have to start to embrace that. And I, and I did. Um, so then uh, I thought I was going to do Tokyo, and I, I adopted this mentality of think it, do it. And it really is something that I'm using in my lifestyle, life now. It's like I don't really, I, I, you know, my life is shorter than most people are going to be. So it's like, uh, all right, if I really want to do something, I should just commit to it and do it. So we did that with Tokyo. Um, for that, it's like I can't do it in a racing chair a year ago. And so um, it didn't end up happening. Yeah, we had to um, pull the plug on. We it. had to pull the plug. Um, but I also knew that I had the experience in early 22. I finally got to use my Boston qualifier, and I started the Boston Marathon because I earned that. And I walked it for four miles with my uh, brother-in-law, who was a great running buddy of mine. I brought him along with me. It was wonderful. Um, and I got to know about uh, other programs, such as the hand cycle program. And so I said, oh, I could do Boston in the hand cycle. So that summer, I, I've been trying, I, I, you know, did some recreational hand cycling. And I was like, oh, I got to get one of these. Well, I, one of the things I said to myself is, I just got to go out and do a race and see what it's like. <laughs> and <laughs> it's kind of hard in Central Texas to find races in July and August. And um, I thought, well, you, what if I qualify for Boston? They, the hand cycle program even has a qualifying thing. Oh, let me let me find a race. Oh, there's Tupelo, Mississippi. And I got a buddy, you know, that was Labor Day. And it's like, oh, good, you know. I'll go do that. And um, then I got COVID and I, I got over it in a week. And then um, I, I did two or three training races. And then my <laughs> buddy and I went up there and I got in that hand cycle that I'd only been in about six different times. And I did that marathon. <laughs> Is that the one where you got stuck on the hill? Yeah, yeah. I was. I didn't get stuck, but I was close <laughs> to being stuck. I didn't know. I, there, there were some techniques that I didn't know, and I was just grinding through it. Now, it was that in the country? It was a nice, quiet thing. So it's a Sunday morning. It's about 8 o'clock. I'm on a country road. So it's like the only way I'm going to get up this hill is to swear and cuss and yell. And I just was grinding that thing over. And as I, as I was moving that gear up the top, I'm screaming. I'm like, these poor cows. I can hear all the dogs around me. Like, what is going on? You know, and no one came out with their shotgun to check on me, you know. But I got up that hill and I was like, okay, um, you can do this if you like really dig, dig deep. And then you could probably even dig deeper, mm. you know. Now I found some techniques um, that I don't have to work that hard <laughs> after that. Let's talk a little bit about that too. You um, have found another, a coach for your para-athlete yeah. um, career. Saul, what is his name? Saul Mendoza. Who is was a, is or was yeah. for sure a world-class, many-time winner of 
Yeah, he at one time in the 90s had the world record for push rim racing marathon. And he won New York City, Boston, I think all of the majors or many of them. He was the best. uh, I don't know if a gold medal, but I know he's medaled for Mm -hmm. Mexico um, in the Paralympics. And he lives in Wimberley or runs a program out of Wimberley, which is about an hour away from Austin, Texas. And Mm -hmm. you go down there every Sunday and ride with those really budding, young, budding, elite-level pushchair athletes, right? These are athletes that are going to world championships and U.S. championships and and representing the United States at the highest level. And here's Bill Corrigan putzing around on his... (laughs) 63 years old, (laughs) talking to middle school kids about, uh, yeah, you're going to get a girlfriend. (laughs) And they look at me, girls. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's just so it's just so cool. So one thing, let's talk a little bit about this six star goal mm-hmm. and where we're at with that. Um, okay, because I think it's um, again, there's so many people who are uh, taking for granted that there's um, that they'll get that they want to re- achieve this goal, which I think is a phenomenal mm-hmm. goal. Uh, it's just a it's a goal of the key that is to this goal is that you have to plan strategically. Mm-hmm. You have to sacrifice financially mm-hmm. and you have to plan ahead and plan and you need a family that's you need a group of people behind you who yeah. believe in you and want you to achieve this goal. Yeah. And it is a it's it's hard to do. But for someone who right in the middle of their journey loses, you know, loses the use of their legs, it adds another level of another wrinkle to this. Yeah. Yeah, it did. And another thing I want to say about it, though, is. um you can have so many different kinds of six-star journey. There's some people that take decades to do it. There's some people that cram it through in one calendar year. So um, when I, before ALS, and I knew I was on the six-star journey, what it, by having that, I, all those things that you just mentioned uh, manifested in me in improving my ability to manage my life do well with all my relationships and get things done. Just because of like all you said, all that complexity, if you're going to do it, there are so many different things they are all very different. What's required for them. It's all over the globe. So there's a lot of things. And so I was getting that benefit from that. And I do think that that then helped me as I've had to navigate insurance, um, different kinds of equipment that I've needed with ALS, you know, things are changing. Um, I'm always um, trying to stay ahead of it. And I just don't, I can never really tell what the progression is. It's easier for me with ALS to look back one month, two months, and like, what can I do then that I can't do now? Rather than like trying to look forward, even a month or six months and say, where will I be? I just don't know. Mm. So um, having that starting on that journey, um, having you as a coach, and sticking with the discipline for completing marathons really helped me to kind of navigate the complications that is my life right now. So, but your re we in our conversation yesterday, we were we were approaching a conversation that we we began the start of a conversation that said the six star journey is uncertain, mm-hmm. whereas when we started this process and you re-engaged and had knew you could use the hand cycle and the push chair, mm-hmm. you were fully 
as many distance runners are, you just locked and loaded, as mm-hmm. they say, as we say, right? And but now you've had to check your weapon a little bit and figure yeah. out how you're gonna do this. Is it gonna get done? And let's talk a little bit about what that's like. This this recognition of that it's not just what you put your mind to. Yeah. Um, so there's a certain aspect of this where I felt gracious and grateful that my lung capacity has stayed fine. My speaking capacity has stayed fine. My use of my hands has stayed fine. So I can continue to feed myself. I can continue to type on a computer. I can write all of those things I can, I can keep doing. Um, I've noticed in the last few months, um, you know, I, it's like, oh, grabbing the milk out of the refrigerator, that's heavy. And I go, well, it's because you're sitting in a wheelchair and you're reaching up over your head and you're pulling it down and it's at arm's length away and you've been training. And like in the last week or so, I said, dude, you have been masking yourself to some of the things that are going on around you. Mm-hmm. And a couple of days ago, I noticed uh, I was talking on the phone and I realized um, I had the phone in my left hand up to my ear and then I used my right arm and I grabbed my uh, forearm and it's like, oh, you're supporting this phone up to your face with your other arm because it's just too hard for you to hold the phone up to your face. And so I started going like, wow, what can it, what does this mean for trying to do marathons? And I've been on a break because I completed a marathon in uh, early September. So I took six weeks off before training to give me four months to train for Tokyo. And I just started getting into the training period. And I'm going like, this is not going to be the same training period that you had last summer when right. you train to do that marathon in September. And I'm starting, I'm still haven't figured out what it is, but it's like, I do have to come up with different ways to do this. And so some of this made me, I had to say to myself, um, for the first time, it's like, maybe you're not going to do these marathons. Going to Tokyo is a big damn commitment, you know? And I find myself, I'm calling myself, I'm in this sort of little window of uncertainty. And that's, it's defined. It has a beginning where I entered the window of uncertainty and it will have a period of when, I, when I'm out of that uncertainty and I will do something. And I'm going to relish this period of uncertainty right now. And for me, that means to keep going, but not to, the goal, uh, not to hold on to the goal. So for, in this period of uncertainty, it's like, okay, when I get into train today, I'm just training for today because I want to get in that chair and I want to train. And I'm only going to think about today right now. And then I'll see how I feel after that. So I'm not, I'm letting go of all of my goals for right now. I know that I have to make decisions about them. And I got some things that will help me make those decisions. But for now, it's just um, be in the uncertainty and embrace the uncertainty. It's, uh, it's, it's amazing to me. Um, especially when you go back and listen to our podcast episode from the last one, because this is where, you know, at one point in time you said to me in that interview, I'm going to push back on you, Steve, because you're basically saying that, uh, 
your your basic argument was listen how do i actually plan for these kinds of how can i train my mind in a systematic way to be prepared for the things that i'm going to see out there on the road and my statement to you was and i'm still shocked at my statement to you um even then, I understood things. Maybe I didn't have the ability to articulate them the way I do now, but I understood this at a deep fundamental level, that the basic nature of the event itself, competition itself, is uncertain. And this idea that we're going to create a mental training plan that's going to allow us to periodize or place it in a certain time and place obscures the actual real challenge, so it masks the real challenge, and steals the beauty and creativity away from what actually happens when you race. That what you need to do is to be as ready for as many things as you can and therefore pick a way, find a way to do that. Because if we get in this pattern of thinking we can pattern out the chaos, we can't. It's going to be chaotic. And here you are basically articulating three and a half years later verbally articulating you're going through that exact process in a way that is that you've been doing repeatedly i didn't ask you to listen i mean i walked in the door to your your house today and you were listening to the episode yeah. i'm not even sure you got to the point where we just made that discussion yeah, in terms I, I, of it but it, here we are and you're just re you're just articulating exactly back to me the point that i was trying to make in that episode which is that uncertainty that 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 uncertainty just requires us to what was your term um think and do or was it uh think it do it think it do it so yeah. it, you your best approach from a mental perspective your best approach from any perspective is just to be there present as a best you can yeah for whatever may show up and then it, uh, there's this trust yeah that yeah. you have and the blink thing that is really amazing is the amount of trust that you've had in your desire to continue your belief that your body will let you do what your body will let you do, and then the acceptance that it won't let you do what it won't let you do. Yeah. And you, I know you struggled with this because there were a number of times that you and I were in conversation where we were, we were struggling with this aspect. But I can see now over these years that you've now moved into what I would call the natural state, which is flexibility, malleability fluidity even in the end even as we're you're not at the end but you're it's end days right you don't know how much longer i have you no have. idea i like i said before i'm living i'm not dying right. so it it's like that i just want our listeners to hear that that you know i talk about uncertainty a lot i talk about arbitrary goals i talk about all these things but even for a man who's been given a diagnosis that's certain to be the thing that takes his life He's still rolling with the punches. And this is what I love about you, Bill. This is why you're an inspiration to me. This is why I know you're an inspiration to the Telos community. And I hope that everybody who listens to this episode also gets that same sense of real inspiration around how you approach your life with this disease. Now, I do have a question for you, though. I don't know if this will be the end of the conversation. Maybe they'll start up another 15 minutes, but... Do you know your running purpose? 
Do you think, you know, we, this is how we, this mm. is how we ended that episode yeah. was like, you said, I think I need to go back and look at my purpose. Cause you've done your rhetoric to running, you've yes. done other things, but I brought up a number of things. So let's talk about over the last three and a half years, how that, cause you mentioned it earlier in this episode, like, yeah, I had to get back to my purpose. I had to think about my purpose. So how do you frame that now? And just for our listeners sake, I, I, I almost, I, I really was a little bit embarrassed a little bit by my episode that you guys will probably be listening to before this one, just because of my adamant, how adamant I was that there was a sense of purpose, a global sense of purpose that could be achieved by running. I think I've stepped back about that a little bit. I, I think that we can, it's a lot like saying there's a meaning of life mm-hmm. when there's really not meaning of life, there's meaning in life. And in essence, it's like, there's not a purpose of life. There's purpose in life. Mm-hmm. But anyway, tell me, talk a little bit about your journey with that and, and where you sit with that now, because you are still an athlete. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, athletics for me is now, I, I, I've changed like that too. And for me, I understand it is as a tool. Um, so it's just one of the tools that I have to have a great life. Um, you and my running community and my family and friends have, and, you know, with ALS, have helped me to understand gratitude and graciousness. And I... That's another tool that I have. And so I can, can kind of combine them because so um, it's just easy for anybody. If you're going to do something, you know, set a goal, put something out there on the, on the, you know, on the calendar and work towards that. And then that will help you, you know, as we mentioned, uh, I like to call it in the other episode, get to the front door and decide to not go out and just have a second cup of coffee, you know, and those days will happen. But if you put enough of these dates on the calendars and as you progress through them, I've done 60 marathons now, um, you get the sense of like, okay, um, it's all right to fail. You learn something from that. It's all right to, it's not today, um, but you know, better get at it tomorrow. And I still use those sorts of things. So um, rolling, if we, that instead of running for me now, um, is just, I, I have to stay active and fit um, to really have the best, the rest of my life to be best, to, uh, to be as good as it can. So um, I just use it kind of as a tool. And it's also, it's like, I don't know if it's bucket list or something like that. I try not to think of it in terms of that, but it's kind of like, all right, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning, I had these goals before. Why should they change? They really shouldn't change because of ALS. And I still hold that conviction. So I do these because it um, helps me stay fit. It helps my mind stay in a good place. And, you know, it's a purpose for getting up in the morning and do something. I, um, uh, there was a, a fellow, a Washington Post writer, who um, developed a really bad lung disease and he was dying from it. And that's where I learned the phrase, I'm not dying, I'm living. And he said, the day that I die will be the day that I don't finish a project that I started that morning. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it's like, you just got to have something that when you get up in the morning, it's like, you're going to do something today. Well, get up and go do whatever that is. Just have some reason to get up and go do that. And then it's just for today. You know, you don't have to think about tomorrow. What are you going to do today? Do you have any other little things bubbling up in you that, you know, number one, you're an elder. 
you've been at this running game for a while. As you said, you've run 60 marathons. Do you have advice for those who are maybe in the middle of this journey and are that something that they, that you have found useful and beneficial? It can be cliche and mm. something everybody's done, or it could be something novel and new. But and, and it doesn't need to be just one thing. But are, is there anything you'd like to share? Because it is from folks like you that we all need to learn and being presented and confronted with this challenge that you have here is something that will probably bring a different point of view and a different way of looking at things than most people may have. So I just invite you to go wherever you want to with that. You can go on for, you can give me a two liner or you can give me a 20 minute conversation. <laughs> you know me, I love to talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. So my slogan that I use is run through the tape. And um, that's really kind of the idea of like, you know, um, you whatever you're doing, um, it's really worth you doing it all the way. And so you don't um, slow up as you see the finish line. You, you find an extra gear, whatever that is. It's not necessarily speed, but something in your heart that makes you go and you're going to finish that race and you're going to do it through that. So my slogan is run through the tape. And that's just what I'm doing with, with my life. Another one I'll borrow from... Andrea Little Pete, and that's go on, be brave. Mm. And that's, you know, um, you got something in your mind and you're a little afraid of it, you know, and it's hard and life sucks, you know, but it's like maybe, you know, you can do it. So find it in yourself that pull yourself just a little bit, believe in yourself, you can do it. And then um, I'll also say um, uh, gratitude and gracefulness. I am so grateful to you, Steve, for having this conversation with me right now, mm -hmm. for allowing me this time for you and I to converse and talk about these things because it makes me feel real good to talk about this. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm just grateful that for this opportunity. And I hope that everyone else can find how they can use gratitude and gracefulness in their life. It's, it's an amazing elixir. I feel your gratitude. And it's... You know, I'm a big fan of gratitude. I use it as a, it's my favorite mode to tell athletes who are at 20 miles, 18 miles or 20 miles on how to open up and, and move through late stage challenges that show up on race day. It's my, it's, it's guaranteed to work. If a person really is open and honest with it, that it's guaranteed so true. to work. But the one thing I want to mirror back to you just to show you is this entire conversation has been grace and the gracefulness of talking about a very challenging thing. The what my journey with you since you've been diagnosed with ALS, my journey with you before that was just two jackasses being jackasses <laughs> together. Cause uh, though we have different we worlds, have some good fights, even though we got different worldviews, we have a deep respect for each other. Um, and then, but it, since this diagnosis, watching you go through the stages of grief that show up and the state of self-pity that no one can really understand until they've been through or seen someone go through it. To see where you stand now, Bill, stronger than you were when you received the diagnosis, 
more focused, loving, embracing of the community, this grace is exudes out of you. And it's something that I, I feel great privilege to be around and be with you and to continue to call you athlete and more importantly, to call you friend. Uh, thank you for this conversation and to all our listeners, um, do a little research on ALS. And if you find it, it, it will do nothing but open your heart because the diagnosis of ALS is so devastating and so challenging. And it's the, one of the few diseases where we really do not know what in the hell is going on. Um, and it's random. It's like a lightning bolt from Zeus from the sky. <laughs> and if you research that and you find it in your heart to don't make a donation to a organization that supports folks with this disease or any other disease, that would be great. Did you? I see you. I see you chomping yes, at the bit. Yes, so go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I'm raising uh, money for Muscular Dystrophy Association to race the Boston Marathon, and we'll have a link here in the notes. There we go. There we go. And it, the, uh, one last thing I have to say about all this is that the ALS community. So it's the greatest club to join that no one wants to be a member of it. But I've just met so many wonderful people since my diagnosis, and I'm very. It, it, another way that I'm gracious and, and grateful is to be able to help other peoples on who come into this new journey that they have. And now I've been at it uh, a few years. And so I'm always willing and able and helpful to talk to, to people who are just diagnosed and, and help them get started on what that journey may be for them. Thank you, Bill. I really appreciate it. And thanks to all our listeners. Thank you, Steve. Mm -hmm. Godspeed, y'all. Godspeed.